Hello again, and welcome to the lecture on political parties and interest groups. So far, we have talked mostly about how government is structured and what makes the state stable. We have done this almost completely devoid of any discussion of the role and importance of the people in the country. In this chapter, we will be focused on how civil society and the citizens of the state contribute to state stability and policy making. With all that in mind, our learning objectives for this lecture are to understand how political scientists view the formal political organization of interest groups into parties and similar bodies, to understand the basic types of parties and party systems observed by political scientists, to understand the major implications of different types of party systems, to analyze the implications of different forms of aggregating and expressing group interests and addressing these interests through political institutions, and to learn major theories about the causes and effects of different party systems. We will follow the general outline of the book. We will start by defining political parties, party systems, and interest groups. Then we will discuss different ways of organizing and functioning in these systems. We will then end the discussion by exploring how different party systems and interest groups in general affect representation. Political parties are probably the most familiar to you. Parties can be understood as political organizations that seek to influence public policy or the law by getting candidates and members elected or appointed to public office. But this is not just about a particular group of people gaining power, but usually is closely related to the ideals or beliefs of the group. In getting members of a political party into positions of power within government, the party is hoping to influence the outcomes of public policy to align with their ideals and beliefs. These ideals and beliefs are often formally stated in the party's platform or common set of ideals, which form the minimum basis for party membership. This is also often how political parties distinguish themselves from one another. Party systems, on the other hand, relate to the way in which political uh, parties is, are characterized, usually related to the number of political parties in a system, which we have previously discussed and is also closely related to the electoral system. The last political organizations we will discuss in this chapter are interest groups. Interest groups are organizations that make demands of the political system on behalf of their members. This is slightly different from political parties in that interest groups usually don't care which political party a government official belongs to so long as they work in the interests of the group's members. Interest groups are varied in their form, size, intent, and organizational level. Some interest groups are large and represent the interests of a particular group of workers, like large labor unions, or business owners in a specific industry, like the National Airline Association. Others represent very specific interests, like the National Rifle Association, while others are more broad in their approach, like the American Association of Retired Persons. Some interest groups are more local, such as an organization of domestic violence shelters in Seattle, while others are national, like the Sierra Club. These examples should help you to understand that, while interest groups are all organized and lobby the government for laws and policies that benefit their group, they are incredibly varied in their size, the issues they focus on, and the level of resources at their disposal. Importantly, Political parties, and especially interest groups, relate to the concept of civil society, or the set of organizations that exist outside of the state through which citizens articulate and advance their own interests. Now that we have an understanding of what political parties, party systems, and interest groups are, we will discuss the different types of these organizations that are most common in comparative politics. 
Political parties can be structured in many different ways. Elite parties are made up of a small number of individuals, usually those who are already involved in politics. Early parties in the United States would be considered elite parties because they were almost exclusively made up of people who were already in government. Mass parties are the complete opposite of elite parties. Mass parties include massive numbers of mobilized citizens. Famously, communist and socialist parties of the early 20th century were mass parties that were made up of hundreds of thousands of peasants and workers. The Nazi party was also a mass party, including not just elites, but thousands and thousands of normal citizens. The most common form of parties today are called catch-all parties. These parties are far more flexible in their platform and ideologies. They attempt to appeal to the greatest number of people by appealing to multiple interest groups to win elections. Proponents of the catch-all theory of party organization have argued that in states where catch-all parties emerge, they tend to be more successful than other kinds of parties, and therefore other parties tend to shift to catch-all to be better to compete better with the catch-all parties. This is another kind of diffusion theory like those we discussed in chapter 3 about the spread of the state as a dominant form of political organization. Party systems also vary in their form. There are three dominant forms of party systems, dominant party, two-party, and multi-party systems. Dominant party systems are those with one major party with no real competitor parties. There may exist some superficial or even real opposition parties, but one party generally wins all the elections and has almost all the powerful positions in government. This may sound authoritarian in description, and many authoritarian states do have dominant party systems, but they also occur in democracies. One kind of dominant party system is a single party system. This is a system where only one party is allowed and all others are banned. There are dozens of examples of single party systems, China, Nazi Germany again, etc. While many would argue that single party systems are undemocratic because they do not allow competition, it has been argued by some that they prevent div divisive and dangerous politics. For example, Rwanda, after their 1994 genocide, instituted a law against divisiveness, which included a ban on any political party that claimed to represent any specific ethnic group. In theory, this would prevent politicians from stoking ethnic tensions again, but in reality, it, is also, it has also allowed the ruling party to declare all opposition parties as divisive and outlaw them. The difference between single-party systems and other dominant party systems is the level to which elections are free and fair and competition is allowed or even encouraged. It is not unreasonable to think that there might be a party in a country that does a good job of ruling and is universally popular that would continue to be re-elected into power based on popularity and not a lack of competition or a ban on competition. This is largely the case in South Africa, where the African National Congress has been dominant since the formation of their democracy after the fall of apartheid. Two-party systems, logically, are those that have two major competitive parties. These two parties regularly contend for power, and the competitiveness and dual quality of this competition lasts for several elections. That is to say that a country would not have a two-party system where there are regularly two parties that compete for power every election, but those uh, parties change every election cycle. Instead, the same two parties fight for power consistently over multiple election cycles. This is clearly the case in the United States, where the two major parties are Republicans and Democrats, and that has been the case for decades. 
In many cases, two-party systems have one party that is considered more liberal or leftist and one that is considered more conservative or right-leaning. There are some two-party systems that might more properly be called two-plus systems. In these states, there are two dominant parties that regularly compete, and one usually ends up with the largest share of seats in the legislature. However, a third party is significant enough to prevent either of the two major parties from having a majority of seats. This would not quite reach the level of a multi-party system because that third party, though effective in preventing a majority, is not large enough to ever gain the largest share of votes on its own. The UK is an example of a two-plus or a a two-and-a-half party system. This leads us to a discussion of multi-party systems. In multi-party systems, there are three or more competitive parties that regularly contest elections. That is, even if one or two main parties usually win elections, other parties are significant enough to sometimes win elections and or affect the outcome of an election by pulling votes away from the dominant groups. Multi-party systems can be either fragmented with a lot of very small parties like in Israel, or relatively concentrated in a small number of larger parties. The institutionalization of a party system, or the extent to which a party system sticks in a country and remains over time, is one more important aspect to party systems. This is related to both the endurance of political parties, in a two-party system it is the same two parties winning all the time, or has, or has one or both of them changed frequently over time, and to the degree which parties remain ideologically stable. Do the parties drastically alter their platforms and core beliefs every election cycle, or is there a consistent theme to the ideologies of the two dominant parties? The more institutionalized a system, the more you know exactly what it means to belong to a party in that system just by hearing the name of the party. Again, think about Democrats and Republicans in the U.S., Importantly, institutionalized party systems do not need to remain completely static over time. If we look at the last major shift in party platforms in the U.S., the U.S. civil rights movement in the 1960s, where Southern Democrats who were upset with the Northern Democrats and Republicans who voted for the Civil Rights Act, the two parties have remained relatively ideologically stable since that time. However, the specifics of the platforms of both parties have changed significantly, if you compare the, say, 2018 platforms to the 1972 platforms. What is important, though, is that while both parties have evolved over time, they have remained relatively ideologically consistent, and most people could get a general sense of your political ideals ideals, if you claimed party affiliation as either a Republican or a Democrat in the United States. Interest groups also take many forms, as we already hinted. They also interact with the government in different ways, depending on political climate of the country they are in. There are two main forms of interest group interaction, pluralism and corporatism. Pluralism is a pattern of interaction between interest groups and the government that is fairly open and transparent. Interest groups openly compete with one another to lobby officials to make policy decisions in their group's interests. Importantly, in pluralistic systems, no group has official preferential access to policymakers. Corporatism, on the other hand, is a system of interest group representation where certain groups are officially designated to represent certain interests 
and therefore have more structured and formal preferential access to people in power. Some people argue that corporatism is actually better and more fair than pluralism in interest group interaction with the government. This is because, they argue, people's interests will naturally sort into certain categories that are represented by interest groups, and by officially giving these groups access, you are ensuring fair treatment of competing interests. In a pluralistic system, for example, many different labor unions may compete for access and influence, diluting their overall claims. If they could instead all have one representative that lobbied on all workers' behalves, it is argued, then they would actually benefit from a corporate system. For the remainder of this lecture, we will focus on the effects of party systems and interest groups on representations. Particularly with party systems, we will explore some more how electoral systems help to shape party systems. As we discussed briefly in the Chapter 9 lecture, and as the videos from that chapter explained, the electoral rules of a political system strongly affect the likely outcome for the party system in that state. As we discussed in that chapter, the two most basic forms of electoral systems are district systems, where districts have legislative elections within a specific geographic region, and proportional representation, where seats are appointed in the legislature based on the overall number of votes a party receives. In democracies with single-member district systems, two-party systems tend to emerge and persist. This is explained by what is called the median voter theorem. According to this theorem, in a system where a candidate needs a plurality of votes to win, competition will naturally be whittled down to two candidates through strategic voting, and candidates with centrist views among the electorate will be the most successful. Note, this does not mean that all politicians will have centrist views, but that they will attempt to calculate what the median voter or most centrist view of their district is and appeal to that. So in a district that is incredibly liberal, like Oregon's first congressional district, the winner is likely to be someone who is liberal because the median ideological stance in that district is liberal. Vice versa for a conservative district and a Republican winner. Let's try to explain this more visually. Take a look at this graph. If each dash along the bottom represents a voter, we have 12 voters. Now say we have three candidates. One of them has the exact same ideology as the voter at the, sec at the uh, second line. Candidate two is ideologically aligned with the person at the fifth line, and the last candidate is aligned with the per person at the ninth line. Now, as voters, we look at these people and are naturally inclined to vote for the person who is closest to us on the ideological spectrum. Obviously, the people at the far left and far right extreme are going to vote for the closest candidates, one and three, respectively. So now candidate one has two votes and candidate three has four votes. How do the rest of the votes get divided? Let's assume that the person at line five and six will definitely vote for candidate number two. Voters 3 and 4 are in between 1 and 2 ideologically, so they split their vote. Now candidate number 1 has 3 votes, and candidate 2 has 3 votes, and candidate 3 still has their 4 votes. What about the voters between candidates 2 and 3? Again, they will lean toward the candidate closest to them. Voter 8 will definitely vote for candidate 3, bringing his total to 5. And let's say voter 7 leans a little more to candidate 2, and votes for her, bringing her total to four votes. Candidate three wins, and everyone to the left of candidate two is super unhappy. 
Now let's leave everyone where they are, but now all of candidate one's voters have been burned before, so they strategically choose to vote for candidate two, even though candidate one is closer to them on the ideological scale. Now candidate two gets everyone to her left, and candidate three still gets all the votes to his right. Candidate two starts out with five votes, and candidate three only has four. They split the remaining votes between them, but remember, voter seven leans a little closer to candidate two than three, so candidate two ends up with seven votes, while candidate three loses with the same five votes he had before. You can play out this game a bunch of different ways, with a bunch of different numbers, and you will always come out with the same two conclusions. One, Voters will be strategic in their choices to end up with the best or least worst outcome, and candidates will do their best to position themselves ideologically as close to the median voter as possible so as to maximize their chances of winning. The second point is a main tenet of the median voter theorem, but for the question of how this shapes party systems, point one is the most important, and therefore, therefore I will repeat it. Voters will be strategic in their choices to end up with the best or least worst outcome, and this strategic voting in single-member districts will inevitably lead to a two-party system that endures. If you're still having questions, go back and watch the videos from uh, Chapter 9, and they will help explain this even more. However, many scholars argue that while the math of the median voter theorem makes a lot of sense— it does not do a good job of accounting for outliers where single-member districts have not led to two-party systems. Therefore, some scholars argue that history and culture needs to be taken into account when explaining party system outcome. For example, political culture and history in many Asian and African countries might account for the large number of single-party systems in those parts of the world. Now we will move on to questions of how patterns of interest group representation shape representation. We will discuss arguments for and against pluralism and corporatism. Many people argue that pluralism is the best form of interest group organization because it encourages debate and, focuses, and forces lawmakers to hear competing points of view and mediate between them to make decisions that will be best for the country as a whole. This sounds like the definition of democracy, listening to all opinions and attempting to find the solution that appeals to the most people. Yet, this model has several issues. First, in the pluralistic model, there is an assumption that the ability to access lawmakers will mean that all people do access them. This is related to the collective action problem you may have heard about in other courses. At its core, the collective action problem happens when there are costs to participating in action for something that I support that I don't calculate to be personally worth it. For example, I might be an environmentalist. I believe in working hard to save the planet and keeping our air and water clean. I recycle and drive a Prius. I actually do. But I might not think that it would be worth the additional time, effort, and money to lobby the government on behalf of environmental causes. This is especially true where there are other people who are willing to do that for me. I don't have to personally lobby because other environmental groups do that for me. This is also called the free rider problem. I get the benefits of the efforts of, say, the Sierra Club's lobbying without having to contribute anything myself. Another problem with pluralism is that it does not do a good job of institutionalizing and ensuring that all points of view are heard. 
In a pluralist system, access is often dependent on resources. Those with fewer resources have less of a chance to influence policy, while those who can afford to hire full-time lobbyists are consistently getting their views heard by lawmakers. Corporatism has its own advantages and disadvantages, related to those of pluralism. Corporatism ensures representation regardless of time and resources. Since there is institutionalized representation for major interest groups in society, we can be sure that all sides of an issue are presented to lawmakers before they make decisions. This, it is argued, facilitates consensus and consistent national strategies regardless of who is in power. For example, if government changes but the interest group's preference remain the same, the new government is likely to continue programs that have been worked out between competing interest groups regardless of who is in power. On the other hand, corporatism is often, though not always, associated with authoritarian regimes. In these situations, it is not uncommon for the government to co-opt interest groups and use them to indoctrinate the populace. Also, corporatism tends to lead to a very small number of elites making all their decisions, all the decisions of government, which feels very undemocratic. Additionally, the consistency of these groups leads to relationships between lobbyists and politicians that can make it hard to change any policy in government. As you should understand now, after all the lectures from this section, how how democratic a state is, is the result of a complex combination of multiple institutions that are difficult to disentangle from one another. While this chapter focused on parties and interest groups, we could easily see how these things are also related to executive and legislative structures, electoral systems, and regime type. Think about the different ways these various pieces interact with one another and what you think the best combination might look like. Mm